Hey there, and welcome to Pink Squirrels, brought to you by Sapia AI, your guide to the future of HR, HR tech, and big HR ideas. That's right, it's Pink Squirrels. I'm your co-host, Nate Hewitt. When it comes to AI for recruitment and assessment, industrial organizational psychologists are a critical part of the selection, vetting, and implementation process. Now, I know what you're thinking. Yes, we know this, of course, but we also know that out in the field, it can be tough for psychs to know where to begin and how to make an impact. Recently, Bob had a chat with Matthew Moulter-Cohen, Head of Recruiting and Selection Analytics at Capital One. Matt has a PhD in Neuroscience, a Master's in Psychology, and around two decades expertise in behavioral assessment, AI, and prediction. Needless to say, he's your go-to guy for understanding how AI psychologists can lead the way in ethical AI for recruitment. Bob, take it away. What, what advice would you give to the IOs in, you know, in the community of IOs? Because um, like they're critical in this decision-making process uh, around using an AI assessment. Like how do they get at the seat at the right table? What table should they be at? You know, what, what advice do you have for that community, Matt? Sure. Um, I, th- I think there's a two-part question there. So one, there's advice on how to um, interact with or evaluate new tools and new methodologies. And then the other is just more how you interact with the business and how you have a seat at the table. Um, I mean, the number one thing I would say is actually don't be afraid. Um, understand where your limitations are uh, and try and educate yourself to the best of your ability or bring in partners. Not every single person can know everything. Um, and, uh, I work with a matrix set of individuals at Capital One to bring a lot of our efforts to life. Um, and I would expect that other people should too. Um, and so it's not just, everything doesn't just rest on you to evaluate, um, what is being brought, uh, to you and the information in front of you. Um, the other thing I would say is that realistically, um, the concepts are still the same. Like you still need to have good measurement. You still need to use data that is relevant to a person's ability to do the job. Um, you still need things to be face valid uh, and also uh, have construct validity and predictive validity. Um, so they, you know, again, predict outcomes specifically. Um, but these are simply new mathematical techniques um, that help uh, with improving prediction and also new technologies that help collect the data um, and potentially new types of data, uh, but that are still uh, obviously very relevant for performance on the job. Hey, can I just ask you, you know, when you talked about you leverage other talent in the business, like a matrix approach, what does that expertise look like? Like if you were leading change in an organization like yours, a big listed company, and you know you can't do it alone. You need to have a team of people that help you navigate that. Like, what what expertise do, should you try and get around the table? Um, you need all partners in the room when evaluating uh, certain technology or technology partners, especially that are going to help with hiring. Um, that includes everyone, obviously, from the uh, industrial organizational. Uh, psychologists who are your assessment and measurement experts um, to people who are involved in understanding if the candidate experience is appropriate for your brand and if the technology can interact with your systems. So people from tech, um, 
you need people from potentially the risk office that help just evaluate and check that things work for the regulations in your area um, and the way that your company works. Um, obviously, uh, startups might be willing to take more risks or even small companies than large companies. Um, you need people from legal who might help advise on any issues that uh, obviously are sit in the legal uh, zone um, and interact with regulating bodies of that country. Um, you want to bring in also people uh, from your communications team and from your product teams that can help make sure uh, that everything is functioning well and understand what the user experience looks like as people go through uh, the system. And all of those people combined help you evaluate whether this is the right thing to do for your company at that time. Um, and it's really great because having that conversation come to life only makes things better. Having heard you, you know, list off all the different players, like to some leaders that might feel really overwhelming and scary. Like, do I have the gravitas as a leader to coordinate all of that, you know? And, um, uh, you know, it, it, the, the case for change, because really to get that many people in the room means that there's a really strong case for change, isn't there? Like, how do you pull that together? And what do you think the case for change is in using AI tools or changing your process? Because it, it's an upheaval, right? It's, it's a massive change program. Um, it is. It is. And usually massive change programs take a, take a village. Um, the case for change actually rests on some of the expertise that uh, the one group that I did not uh, mention before uh, might bring to the table, which is data science uh, as well, to help our measurement experts evaluate the tools that are in front of you. Um, they, that case for change explicitly um, is driven by an ability to focus on outcomes and to directly tie sort of your efforts to those outcomes. Um, and that in business, that always wins the day. <laughs> like that's how businesses run. Um, and so there's no reason that things should be different in the HR space or the people space. Um, and actually that will help that group have a seat at the table. Um, if you can speak to outcomes such as lowering costs, improving the experience, improving the quality of the people that you bring in. Um, if you can drive ROI like that, um, if you can speed up your ability to bring in good talent, that is that is that will win the day overall. Uh, and I've seen it I've seen it time and again. And and the um, the AI part of that I'm just interested in how you tackle that organizationally, right? And some of the language you've mentioned like mathematics, you know, I, I mean, that scares me and that will probably scare a whole bunch of HR people. You know, people join HR to be part of a community and help people not to necessarily work with technology or data. Um, I know that's changing, but, you know, how do you, how do you kind of demystify it for that group? How do you help them feel safe and trust AI when you have a whole community yeah. of media out there who are doing their best to tell us the opposite? Yeah. Um... You need to speak in simple language um, if you are either internal or external to the org. So if you're on the vendor side or if you are trying to make the case for change inside a organization that maybe is a little behind. 
if you can speak in simple language, even about difficult concepts, then people will understand you. If you can simply say that we are looking to implement this tool because we think that it will improve the quality of talent that we bring in. And by the way, we plan to simply measure that by the output performance on X for whatever that role is. Um, if we're talking about, uh, you know, a call center, for example, you might say um, SAT scores improve by X percentage. If you're talking about uh, fast food, you could say that response times decrease, um, customer complaints decrease. If you are talking about uh, actually more uh, grad jobs, um, you might say that uh, attrition is reduced. Um, because there is better fit for the role. Um, so there's lots of outcomes that you can speak to, and that's, that's, that's it. People understand that, yeah. The, the, the outcomes for when you're talking about roles that are highly measurable in objective ways is yeah. sort of reasonably straightforward, but I'm curious, you know, Capital One has a lot of white-collar talent. How do you really measure quality of hire when it comes to white-collar professionals? Um, it is very difficult. Um, and it is something that we continually try and get better at. Um, I feel like you've got a secret here that you don't want to reveal, that you figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> um, let me just say that there's lots of different data that you can utilize. And I think if I were giving advice to organizations, I would say that you always want to evaluate the quality of the data how the data was gathered and under what conditions it was gathered. And I would also advise to consistently focus on um, behavior uh, and as discrete and measurable behaviors as possible. Um, and those help uh, us understand how someone will perform over time. Um, that then obviously is different for people in different roles. Uh, there's different things that make someone uh, explicitly amazing at their job if they're in a technical role or if they're in a um, analyst role or if they're in a marketing role um, and you have to be very thoughtful uh, it, it's really it really is one of the hardest problems out there so that that one is not something that is simple to a simple so let, to let's talk about how recruiters make that assessment about quality today on white collar yeah. workers it's yeah. mostly CVs, right? People still rely heavily on CVs to tell them whether someone's going to be great in the role. And, you know, there's lots of research we've both seen that talks about latent bias in CVs, even when you try and de-identify gender and race. Um, but we're incredibly attached to CVs. Like, why is that? And, you know, you also describe behaviour as being really important in role. You know, that, that, that idea that you get hired for technical skills, but typically when you're fired, you're fired for the, for the soft skills, which aren't really visible in the CV. Are we, yeah. are we ever going to see the end of the CV? Why are we still reliant so much on that as an indicator of, you know, predictor of performance in role? Um, there's two things I'll say about CVs and about the tools that people get attached to with regards to evaluating people for roles. One is that CVs tell a story. Um, and they tell a very simple to understand story. And it might be that this person just really isn't qualified because this person doesn't know how to format their text on their CV and they have spelling errors and they went to the wrong school. Um, 
but that's what you're assuming the story is, right? We are making a lot of assumptions about the person who wrote that you know, resume, and you can have amazingly formatted resumes. However, that person didn't even put that together. They worked with a coach and the co they paid them several hundred dollars and they made it all pretty and designy. Um, and it actually doesn't represent that person amazingly well at all. Um, and, but it does tell a story, which is what people get attached to. And so the idea is how can you tell a story with different data? Um, and that will, you know, and then if you attach that different story to different, uh, with different data to outcomes and show that it is measurably an improvement over the CV and you can test that head to head with simple experiments, I think that will win the day uh, overall. Um, there is another reason that people are attached to CVs. It's because they don't necessarily know what else to turn to. Um, it is a tool that's been around for a long time. Everyone that, and, and, the, and their mother has written a CV themselves. Um, and so they know what it is, right? It, um, and that makes it easy to understand. So they need something else that's easy to understand, um, to latch onto and to understand viscerally. Um, I have to tell a story with. So the other piece that we think tells a story is um, body language, is you know how you're leaning in now, matter, making all sorts of judgments about you and whether you're really committed to this conversation or not, or how you shake my hand or whether you turn up on time for an interview or not. And it's really fascinating with our technology because it's blind, the question we'll often get asked is, but what about body language? You know, you, that's so important to telling someone's traits. You know, what, what do you say to that? I think that um, that's a tougher one. Um, and there are many different things that you can get from body language. Um, and there is, can be signal there. And there can also be red herrings there. Um, and I think you have to be just as diligent with that data as you are with any other set of data. Um, I think that's the main thing I would take away there and you'd want to see it over time. Now there is one thing I will say, um, is that people react to people. And so if you are hiring someone who is in a role where they're body language might have a direct effect on their performance on the job. That's pretty important. Um, the other thing we'll say about body language though, is that there's probably uh, individual biases um, that come in, in our judgments of other people based on who we are and what types of people we've been exposed to. Like if we are actually someone who is more introverted we might love it when people don't make eye contact with us and it might make us feel very comfortable and it might help us evaluate them quite favorably for the role, even though maybe someone who is not making eye contact and doesn't speak as much and is turned away from the person on their job, that might not help them do the job as well. Um, and the opposite could also be true. Um, so I think it still requires just a very thoughtful approach. Um, uh, and we have to be aware of, uh, everything that goes into. Yeah, uh, so that it, it, it's like, um, you know, all the data that we think we're gathering, but really how do we get true objective intelligence about someone? That's, you know, that's yeah. the kind of nirvana. And so that takes us to diversity. And, you know, there's a lot of discussion in the US and elsewhere around is AI actually the savior? 
to fix diversity if you put the right technology in place at the earlier stage? You know, do you actually need targets, right? Does it, does it overcome that need to drive diversity programs, which frankly haven't worked? Unconscious bias training doesn't work from a removing bias because most biases are unconscious. And, you know, the EOC is really open to the um, opportunity that AI brings to finally create some, you know, democracy in, in, in opportunity. Um, and sourcing and selection we've also talked about are really connected. You know, the experience that you have may invite the introvert or may not invite the introvert into your process. You know, how do you think that conversation is changing and actually becoming more positive towards AI because it can positively impact on diversity. Do you see that happening more often now in your world? Do people see um, AI as actually a, you know, a, 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 a much more scalable and effective way to address the lack of diversity? Because frankly, you know, we keep talking about diversity because we don't see diversity, right? It's still a big issue. Um. I think like any new technology, uh, there's sets of people who see it as something that can that can help incredibly, and there's other detractors, again, who are sort of afraid uh, and point out the failings. Um, the people who are excited about what it can do will highlight the fact that uh, even if there is some bias at the beginning, you can iterate and actually reliably remove that bias over time. And that's a huge benefit because, it, as you said, diversity training doesn't work. Humans are continually biased. Um, and we can get to a place where there are uh, tools um, that won't be biased and will utilize only the data that is relevant to someone's performance on the job. Um, and we can actually measure that, which is fantastic. Um, and so we can provably show that that is true. Um, the people who are still fearful will push for greater regulation and will cite examples. And you mentioned at the beginning, you know, that uh, Pymetrics and HireVue were there. Um, there's other famous examples where potentially um, some of the tools were ahead of their time. Um, and, uh, we saw, um, unpleasant outcomes, but those are like a decade old or, you know, seven, eight years old. And the tools have only gotten better and better. And each time you notice that something is incorrect, people don't do it again. Um, this is exactly the way that any technology scales. When pilots first started flying planes, everyone flew by sight. Uh, and then slowly over time, they started to use instruments. And at the beginning, when they used instruments, some of the instruments weren't actually that good. Uh, and they caused problems that maybe weren't that much of an improvement over the pilots. But then slowly, the instruments got to be quite good. And it once they were so demonstrably better than pilots, it was impossible for anyone to reject the idea that... Uh, the tools were better than the people at flying the plane. And you could simply see it by fewer pilots dying and fewer pilots crashing, um, which was fantastic. And now we have safe, safe air travel that spans the globe. Um, and it's amazing. Uh, it's like a modern most, one. Most planes are flying on autopilot. 
most planes are filing on autopilot. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and, and I don't think people even think about that mm. um, because all they think about is the outcome. Mm. It's safe. Mm. I can get on the plane and go. Mm. Doesn't matter to me how it happens. It achieves my objective. Yeah. And yeah. there, you know, and there are still pilots, right? I think that's one fear that people have is that if you bring technology in, am I still going to be necessary? And, you know, there are many industries which have been massively disrupted by technology. If you think air travel, you know, Flight Centre in Australia is a travel agency, but it, apart from COVID, um, it's been an incredibly successful business, but we can all go and find our own flights online, but yet people still need them. You know, that human in the loop in our context is what, what we call it is incredibly powerful. Um, so what, just in the context of, um, actually one other thing I wanted to ask you, Matt, is we've spent a lot of time talking about the organisation side and how they navigate it and what questions to ask. But actually we often forget the human in this, which is the candidate. And I still think that a lot of, you know, if we go and interview a thousand candidates or a million, how many of them will say, oh, it's just brilliant. It's so easy to apply for a job. It's so fast. I know exactly where I am in the process. I learn from it. I've discovered what I need to know about the organisation. I love it. I mean, I, I don't know. Could we find anyone who would say that? And why is it taking so long to fix that part of it? Because, you know, we are now in a war, in a battle for that to any talent right, like in any role. So surely now is the time to sort of really look at what does that experience feel like for them? Um, I think, again, this comes back to the fear of doing something slightly different. Um, if I think about my experience as a candidate or in speaking with people who are applying for jobs, what people want to know is where they are in the process and they want their expectations set as to whether you know, their chances are improving or, or not um, and how long it's gonna take and clear communication about what's going to happen. That's it, it's very simple. Communicate and set expectations. Um, people are also afraid that if you give them feedback that it is even close to real, that there's some danger um, that might occur by being honest with people. Um, realistically, most people are actually pretty happy and know from the interaction during those interviews, whether it's a good fit for themselves or not, whether they'll admit it, you know, they might have, they might be annoyed that maybe they're not qualified for this job, but it's better simply to just get that out there. Um, so I would encourage people to take that leap of faith and at the very least, the leap of faith of being clear in your communication about the process and where people stand in the process. Um, you don't have to go all the way to the um, completely transparent feedback about exactly how someone did. Um, so, uh, and, and yeah, I'll, I'll yeah, I'll say one extra thing on that. It's a two-way evaluation process. I think organizations sometimes forget that candidates are also evaluating them, and the way that you structure your process says a lot about you as an organization as well. Um, and it says about, you know, what respect you have for the candidate. It says something about what type of workplace they might be coming into. Um, and so you should be very thoughtful about that whole experience. Uh, and uh, I would argue that uh, people who take the time to set that up well and who are honest with people will, will win the day and, and get the, the best people to come work for them. 
Thanks for listening. Pink Squirrels is brought to you by Sapia AI, creator of the world's first AI smart interviewer.